This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, I'm Tanya Thompson, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales from Black writers all over the world. This week, we have a story from Eric Nunnally. It reminds me a little bit of Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, but it's such a unique take that it's almost completely different. I also interviewed Eric, so make sure you stay tuned after the story. He was a great conversationalist, and I can't wait to have him on future episodes. Before we get started, though, I want to thank our newest patron, Christopher, and I'd also like to thank Georgia McKenzie, who was our narrator for the last two episodes of The Percivals, who donated both of her fees for both episodes to the podcast. So I wanted to thank her so, so much for that. I really appreciate that, Georgia. So sit back, turn out the lights, and enjoy Penny Incompatible by Eric Nunnally. Penny stepped off the bus onto a street as familiar as her own two feet. Heat bled off the concrete and asphalt, carrying the thick scent of the inner city, a heady mix of things discarded. As a child, she found many a carcass while playing in abandoned lots or unkempt backyards. She imagined that the summer smell was all the dead creatures baking in the sun and felt ashamed. It was the first time such a dark thought passed through her mind. What would her mother think? Or Pastor Matthews, for that matter. Much later, she learned that it was the stench of dogs not walked, animals leashed to a small plot of land for the entirety of their lives. It was the smell that tingled in her nose when the bus transitioned from north to south in the city. It smelled like home. In spite of the years and cosmetic changes, the spirit of the neighborhood endured. A possession that began in the 1970s and continued to drive roots deeper every decade. As ever, a circle of wayward boys held court in the light of a 24-hour store. She watched one of them pour half a container of juice into the gutter before turning his back to top it off with something else. There was a time she would have marched right up to the young man and called out his behavior. Decades before her time, adults called the buses the Jungle Line, a reference she didn't understand. The neighborhood was a mix of triple and double-deckers, yards, sidewalks, parks, schools, churches, corner stores, and not much else. 
to her young mind, this part of the city, barely three stories high, hardly seemed like a jungle. Now she understood the bitter shame and recognized that the area had settled well into its defined role. The square's location served as a hard stop between two of Boston's most dichotomous neighborhoods. She remembered that the Jews had lived here before the blacks arrived. All the triple-deckers had the little mezuzahs nailed to each doorway, all since removed and defiled. Her older brother had removed the last one in their childhood home, exclaiming when he did, there's a paper inside with secret words. Then he rushed to comb the house for more, finding nothing but the shadows. As the neighborhood suffered the redlining pivot, so went the remnants of one abused culture moving a few rungs above another. On television and in movies, the death of childhood was often depicted as the burden of heartbreaking responsibility. Penny understood that for the first time when it became clear that she played on the team that carried the impossible fragility of America's ruling class. Aching for the weekend, when she could cross the square and take a long walk along River Street to the park, she headed the opposite direction up the hill. Along the way, she continued to think that maybe putting her bare feet in the sprinklers and sitting for a while was a very good idea. The few blocks to the farmer's warehouse, Mattapan's perennial market, were blessedly empty. The market sat right off the square. Everyone's kid had worked at the store bagging groceries or stocking the shelves or working the register. Even her son had worked there in his early teens, years ago, when he was still fresh and sweet. A small chain bought the store out, but they hadn't changed the original name in her mind. Or the smell. Because nothing really changed anymore. Not since acclamation to the passage of the Civil Rights Act. New buses, repainted trolleys, a different name on a door. The same hardened heart still pumped the soul of its people through the neighborhood. And sometimes spilled their blood into the street. She stopped at the market once every week after her shift. It was easier in the mornings just before the commuter hour when the responsible among them took the bus and trolley to downtown jobs. The people who were around, however, the ones who floated around the edges of society, they retreated only when the sun was at its highest peak, and even then not too far into the shadows. An obese Haitian woman blocked her way into the store. She chatted with a friend several feet away. They spoke in the rapid-fire patois gutted from French by way of the Caribbean slave trade. Penny didn't understand a word. It was nothing like the fluid and melodic French she'd experienced in school or heard in movies. This version had the hard edge of raw history carved in every syllable, every phrase. Both women <laughs> laughed harshly, oblivious to Penny's presence. Excuse me, she said. The woman looked at her. Eh? I just... She waved a hand toward the store's entrance, shoulders hunched. Ah, okay, fine, fine, said the woman in heavily accented English. She waved to her friend, tossed a few more incomprehensible words into the air, laughed again and ambled slowly through the entrance. Penny followed, teeth grinding. She recalled when the Caribbeans had come, mostly Haitians. They brought their habits and their loud, choppy language their smells, the sweat of their food, their music, their brand of violence. Penny enjoyed curry sometimes, but the rest remained beyond her palate. The grocery store had adjusted to the exploding population, stocking fruits and vegetables she didn't recognize, 
and cuts of meat that were junk in her experience. But even the new blood couldn't change the smell of the market, as if something had died in its walls and kept dying year after year, impervious to the efforts of resuscitation. It didn't bother Penny anymore. Not like it did when she was a young girl. Proof that you could get used to anything given enough time. It took less than an hour to collect her groceries, pay, and return to the parking lot with her two sacks of food. There were two gypsy cabs there, both drivers she knew, dark-skinned men who'd grown up in the neighborhood same as her. This was a ritual she'd been following for years. Good morning, gentlemen. The men answered together, a vocal mix of good morning and Miss Luce. How you been? Just fine, Eugene. It's been a while. Maybe about seven months, I guess. Been on a contract job now, back on the hustle. Well, all right, I guess you're up. Next time, Carl. Mm-hmm. Carl nodded and touched his baseball cap, already focused on the next person coming out of the store. Penny slid her ample backside into the back seat while Eugene held the door. He clambered into the driver's seat with a grunt and asked over his shoulder, Remind me your address again, Miss Luce. She smiled as she dug her wallet out of her purse and told him. Eugene remained a good man and worked hard to support his family by any means. She'd missed him. A bright and steady spot in the tedious week. It was a short ride, necessitated only because of the grocery bags. She fished for a $5 bill in the clutter of her wallet. How's that son of yours, Miss Luce? You got a son, right? I remember you told me he was having some problems a ways back. She froze, the chill of the past draining, flowing into her stomach down her back and legs. Right under her fingers, she held an odd memento, Baron's driver's license. It was a decent photo of her son and the license itself served as a reminder that he had a good heart. Once upon a time, that he'd checked off organ donor and meant it. He passed away, Eugene. She swallowed, holding her voice even and tight. Right about the time you started that contract job. His father doesn't even know. Oh, oh, Miss Luce, I'm so sorry. I wouldn't have asked, but it's okay, Eugene. It's not okay. You didn't know any better. How dare you remind me? Okay, okay, Miss Luce, I'm sorry. You have my condolences. I'm so sorry. That's a terrible thing to hear. Thank you, Eugene. It's a terrible thing to live. They passed the next several minutes in silence. Penny was grateful that Eugene helped bring her groceries up the steep bricks of the porch stairs. She tipped him a dollar bill on top of the five. The tedium of putting the goods away were not a fit distraction for her melancholy, however, and she now sat at her small kitchen table out of habit. A half-inch pile of unopened bills awaited, neatly stacked on the counter. All of the surfaces in the small kitchen were clean and orderly. The entire house, in fact, was well kept. Being the only occupant made it easy to keep up with. The home shared a wall with Mrs. Lorman next door. Her husband Fred loved his drink, and considering his pallor and incontinence, Penny suspected he wasn't long for this world. Fred favored the bottle over much else but his wife and his home. In spite of that, he earned steady disability and social security money. Fran loved him, and he loved her back. That was good enough for Penny. Why were the men who'd been in Penny's life so different? Liquor had a contrasting effect on her ex-husband. It brought out someone she hadn't met before. Someone who was spiteful and petty, who didn't seem to love her like the entertaining fellow she married, the man she'd had a son with. And Baron, 
She knew it was possible for a mother to look at her own son and see a stranger. A man whose visitations brought misery, not joy. She wondered if knowing the relationship between love and hate so intimately had any value. From under the sink, Penny extracted two items kept in a worn paper bag and placed them on the table. One, a nip of Beefeater Gin, her ex-husband's favorite. Two, a small plastic bag folded to form a square with dusty remnants inside, her son's favorite. Together, these two things destroyed her family. She took some time to organize and reckon them, to try to understand what their purpose was or had been. Her tongue found the sharp edge where a tooth had been splintered in a struggle with her adult son. She placed the things back into the bag, rolled it up, and paused in tucking the package into its home under the sink. Her hesitation gave her some hope, a moment where letting go of these remnants might be the path to release. Instead of the garbage, she finished putting them back under the pipes behind a worn plastic basket of cleaning goods. Everything happens for a reason, right? She thought to herself. Penny's eyes wandered the kitchen and dragged to a stop on the fridge. The padlock was undone, as it had been for the last several months. It dangled, useless. How long had it been since the funeral? Not even a year yet. She needed to get around to taking all of that hardware off, to putting a close to that chapter of her life. Normal people didn't need to lock up their food. Maybe next weekend she'd go shopping, replace some of the furniture that had been stolen and sacrificed to her son's addiction, get a few plants to add some life back to the house. She could see the living room from where she sat, the cable wires sticking out of the floor where the television used to be. She hadn't been able to watch her soaps for some time and was having difficulty finding the desire. Fran kept her up to date on the stories, however, and Penny enjoyed the company. The visits harkened back to better times. She sighed and put the items away to get ready for bed. It had taken several months to acclimate to sleeping during the day and she knew it was critical to maintain a ritual in order for sleep to come. She ate a snack and moved upstairs where she bathed, brushed, and read. Years ago, the addition of sun-blocking blinds made the final transition to the night shift possible. That and the central air. The AC unit bolted into the wall had been a prudent investment. Silence, darkness, the white noise of conditioned air. It all played a role in lulling her to sleep, but this morning it seemed to take longer than expected. As she entered the twilight zone of subconscious thought, the moment when one feels they are floating and at peace with the world, as their limbs become buoyant, there came a rap at the door. She snapped awake and listened, waiting. Penny thought it might have been a bird or a squirrel making its way. Then the knock again. A familiar pattern, a kind of riff on shape and a haircut. The knock her son had always used like a passcode on her door until he had stopped bothering to knock. The bedroom faced the backyard, one of the reasons Penny liked the home. It helped keep peace in what was too often a rowdy neighborhood. She couldn't see out front. The vertical window in the stairwell faced the side of the house and featured opaque colored panes. She snapped her covers back, shoved her feet into slippers, and paused. Something was urging caution. A sixth sense whistled warnings from somewhere far away. She opened the nightstand drawer and reached all the way to the back behind a flap of wood. Her hand touched cool metal. 
the revolver her ex-husband had left behind, his last attempt at concern before leaving. She'd never fired it. Didn't even know what caliber it was. But she knew which end sent the problems out. Holding the smooth wood of the grip made her feel stronger than she was. Penny shuffled out of the bedroom and down the stairs, pistol held low at her side as if she were in danger of being seen with it. At the door, she left the security brace in place and flipped the cover on the peephole out of the way. No one. She shifted her attention to the window, checking the blinds first to be sure they offered no view from the outside to inside before parting them. She thought she saw a glimpse of a retreating figure. There's no one here. Penny's mind ground out any dark thoughts and she concluded, I must have been dreaming. After checking all the shades and locks, she stopped and stared at the pistol in her hand, feeling foolish. She took it back upstairs and jammed it back into the drawer of the nightstand. It took another hour or so before she drifted off to sleep. Penny dreams of her son when he was five or six. The last few years when a child still loves with ferocity before the cynicisms of life begin to chip away at that surety. He sees that she's sad and wants to comfort her in the awkward way that children do, having only been comforted all their lives and never much needing to reciprocate. He picks at his chest. She can see he has a zipper there, right down the middle. A little boy with a zipper in the center of his chest. She thinks aghast. My boy, my sweet little boy, how strange. He grasps the slide and begins to tug. She reaches for him, afraid of what happens next if he manages to undo himself. She can't reach him. The air is like mud. It pulls at her, drags on her limbs. The sound of the teeth sliding through the catch are loud, becoming louder. Clack, clack, clack. The interlocking strips rumble like gears in a giant clock. She reaches and he unzips until there's nothing but red, a ragged hole in his skinny chest. Her baby's chest. He's empty. No one should be empty. His father is there at a distance, just out of reach. Always gone and never at hand. He holds a plastic white chest with a red top. She sees there's a red medical cross on the front and he tries to say something, but no sound comes out. She's still reaching for her boy. At the beginning of her shift the next evening, Penny could still hear the zipper. It was an added drag to the night while caring for the less savory needs of patients in rehab. They existed in a half-life between hospital and home, too ill to be on their own and not incapacitated enough to remain at the hospital. Some of them had colostomy systems or oxygen tanks. They needed assistance using the toilet. Their soiled sheets needed to be changed. They needed to be bathed and their medicines delivered. There were three other women on her team and there should have been six. They were supposed to be thankful that budget shortfalls hadn't affected their already low pay, but what they were was numb. Penny could no longer easily count the years she'd worked as a nurse assistant and bills never went away. Only people did that. As she put the finishing touches to a set of linens, there was a commotion at the front desk. The sound of raised voices. Her first instinct was to focus on her job, let the appropriate personnel handle the irate patient. The voice, however, was that of a young man, not a sickly old one. She straightened her whites and poked her head into the hallway. Penny could just make out the back of the intruder, his curly brown hair touching the collar of his gray jacket. Surely the receptionist was at least two decades younger than Penny and Haitian. In Penny's experience, the younger ones were easier to deal with. She repeated herself in a firmer tone. Sir, 
We do not allow unannounced visits. You can leave a message if you like, but you need to leave. I need to speak with her. You need to stop shouting like that, and you need to leave. Penny knew that tone. Shirley had already called security, most likely. It would take a minute for Dennis to get here if he were on the other side of the grounds, but he'd come at full speed and bring the hammer down. Dennis was a large man, past his prime, but imposing, and he took his job seriously. The young fellow cursed and slammed his hands on the desk. When he turned, his back faced Penny. Then she caught a glimpse of his profile as he stormed into the stairwell. He was white, with the shadow of stubble on his cheeks and chin. She stepped into the hallway, striding quickly towards the desk. The elevator doors opened and Dennis stepped out, his bald head gleaming in the harsh light. He wore a crisp white shirt with a badge above the chest pocket and a radio clipped to an epaulette. Miss Shirley, you okay? I'm fine, Dennis. He went down the stairs. White guy, brown curly hair, gray jacket, jeans, needs a shave. Dennis nodded curtly and took pursuit, slamming the door to the stairs open and talking into his radio. My God, Shirley, I heard that man yelling down the hall. At first I thought he was a patient, Penny said. Melina joined them from the opposite hallway carrying a sack of trays. What is going on down here? Was that a patient? She had a thick Dominican accent, squat and strong-willed. She made a good nurse. Penny pointed at the door to the stairs. There was a young man shouting at Shirley. He ran down the stairs. Melina looked at Shirley and asked, Are you okay, Shirley? I'm fine. Praise the Lord for that. She crossed herself and looked up. These people around here. Ain't that the truth? Penny turned to the receptionist. What did he want, Shirley? Well... Melina lit up. Oh, no, please, God, tell me he was not a pervert. Penny turned wide eyes and raised eyebrows to Melina before leaning forward on the desk. Was he trying to get dirty with you? Good Lord, no. He was just... He, he was asking... What is it, Shirley? What did he want? Penny asked. Come on, Shirley. Spill, girl. Melina said in a flat tone. Well, it's not to what... It was a who. He was asking for you, Penny. Melina's mouth formed an O and her eyebrows tried to escape into her hairline. Who was that white boy, Penny? Penny didn't hear her colleague. She retreated into her memories from yesterday. The restless sleep, the nightmare, the knock on the door that she'd chalked up to her imagination. She felt an urgent need to lock the doors, to huddle behind the desk. Who was this man? How had he found her? She began to shiver, not hearing her colleagues asking if she were all right. The spell broke when Mr. Chatain stepped out of the elevator. I just heard from Dennis. Everyone all right? Everyone looked at Penny. Chatain seemed lost for a few moments until he focused on her. Penny? Shirley piped up. Deadman was here asking for Penny. Oh dear. Penny? I'm fine. Her own voice sounded muffled and distant to her. She repeated herself, willing strength into the words and meeting Mr. Chatain's eyes. I'm fine. Are you sure? Penny slipped into habit, put one hand on her hip and narrowed her eyes. She didn't need the help of this man. He may not have been the source of any of her woes, past or present, 
but he represented the thorn in their collective sides because he was management. That he was white only exacerbated the feeling. Fine, fine. He threw his hands up. Let's all get back to it then. The brief incident had put a mark on the shift. Already she was behind schedule. There were many more tasks to attend to and enough misery to fuel the rest of the night. With little over an hour left in her shift, she had two important chores. One was to ensure that Mr. Lenin had taken his meds. He was a tall, pale man with a sheen of jaundice to his light skin. Mr. Lenin? Mr. Lenin, sir. I have your medication here. Mr. Lenin? She touched his shoulder gently and there was no response. His chest moved up and down, so that was a good sign. His mouth slurped open and he began to snore. Mr. Lenu. She gave him a firmer shake and his eyes snapped open. He stared at the ceiling, pupils wide in the low light as his yellow eyes swam slowly toward her. For a moment, it seemed as if she'd woken a demon. The way he looked through her, like she wasn't real or entirely there. There was nothing in his eyes, no fear, just an emptiness. If there were any emotions there, they were all projected through Penny. A sense that she was immaterial. A ghost crept up from her bowels and filled her breast. Dread flowed from what appeared to be the waking dead. The feeling passed as quickly as it came. His speech slurred and vibrated with age in an attempt at firmness. Who are you? What do you want? I'm Penny, Mr. Lanoon. One of the nurses here? We met yesterday. You've been here for two days, and it's time to take your medication. He growled in response, dragging out the ah sound from the back of his throat. Contempt. Penny wheeled his table into place, put the medication on it, and poured him a small cup of water. I need you to take this before I can leave for the night. She stood her ground. There were thousands of Mr. Lanoons, most of them black men, and Penny had met them all. His alcoholism had led to a malfunction of his liver, which led to a buildup of pneumonia in his blood, and it had begun affecting his brain. It was the kind of precipitating turn of events that might lead someone to make a correction in their life. It was certainly embarrassing enough to have been hallucinating in front of one's home so badly that the neighbors called the police. She shook her head, a slight motion, only to herself and clamped her lips shut. There would be nothing gained by commenting on the situation. He grumbled and hissed again while slowly levering himself up. At least you're American, you know? Seems like ain't many got these jobs no more. You know what I'm saying? Penny waited while he swallowed the pills. Water dribbled down his chin. Happy? He snarled at the last swallow. Ecstatic. She cleared the table and said, Good night, Mr. Lanoon. Ain't no such thing here. Y'all keep waking me up. He turned on the light and reached for an aging paperback and his glasses on the nightstand. Penny tried deep breaths to relieve the agitation from her body. Tension pulled at her back and legs. She dropped the paper trash into a pail and slammed her hand into the sanitizer dispenser on the wall outside. One more task and it would be time to clock out. Mrs. Blackthorne needed her bag changed. Routine stuff. Snap off, empty, clean up, replace. Penny entered the darkened room and pulled the curtain. When she flicked on the light, Mrs. Blackthorne lurched in her bed. Oh, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Blackthorne. I didn't mean to startle you. I need to change your bag. Help me. Her eyes were wild as she struggled to sit up. Her bony fingers trembled. I 
need to go to the toilet. Can it wait a moment? We need to... I need to go now. Please help me. Mrs. Blackthorn, please sit back. I have to change that bag. Mrs. Blackthorn lurched up and her bag swung from beneath the johnny she wore. It looked like a gigantic swollen tick with its head buried in her side. Penny felt an edge of panic. When the hell it had been changed last? The old woman convulsed and Penny cursed herself for not recognizing the signs. She lunged for a bedpan as Mrs. Blackthorn vomited. A surge of green with pink and orange bits bubbled out of the patient's mouth, down the front of her johnny. A hot glob of the expulsion splashed on Penny's hand, but she managed to catch the rest in the pan. She placed the reassuring, clean hand on the woman's back as the patient gasped and heaved for air. That was when the colostomy bag burst and its contents splashed over the side of the bed onto her legs and feet. The smell alone was an eye-watering assault, impossible to ignore. The warm, syrupy contents were worse. Liquefied shit spattered all over her pant legs and filled her shoes. Penny choked back her revulsion and went to work. Even after a committed rinse in the deep sink, she still commuted home in shoes that reeked and squelched with every step as the sun rose. She stood in the shower, waiting for the hot water to run out. Penny had bagged and disposed of the soiled shoes and pants as soon as she got home, never wanting to see them again. She swallowed her anger again, vowing to address the issue in as calm a manner as possible of whomever had failed to change that poor woman's bag. Later, it was a later thing. Right now, she needed to let it go and relax. If she didn't, there'd be screaming, emotions flung at the walls and into the empty house, and Fran might hear and become worried. Her back and feet ached. It hurt to blink. Penny needed sleep to come without hesitation to clear the night's experiences away. Her exhaustion wailed that it didn't matter, that it was temporary. Another night would come, another shift. In bed, she stared at the ceiling, and the air conditioner hummed in the background. Penny couldn't sleep. Conditions were perfect. Everything was in its place, and the neighborhood was silent. Still. She stared at the swirls of stucco on the ceiling, waiting. There was a knock at the door, the same pattern as before, the one her son used, had used. Penny felt cold, a creeping numbness from her legs to the top of her head. It couldn't be. The knock again, but more urgent. She pushed the covers back and shoved her feet into slippers before pulling a house coat on over her nightgown. The air had an ethereal quality to it and her mouth felt dry, tasteless. Nothing felt right, and she reached for reassurance. The weight of the pistol pulled on her palm. For a moment, Penny thought she understood why so many young men insisted on carrying one. The heft of it was an unspoken promise. The carpeted stairs stretched beneath her feet, sunlight splashing in all the colors from the window. She crept down the stairs until she could see down the hall to the front door. This time, there was a shadow. Someone waited. A few more steps and she was in front of the table, only a few feet to the door. She eased her way to the door, resisting any sort of confrontation. When Penny eased the peephole cover back, it creaked at the last. A betrayal. Are you there? Is it you? I need to talk to you. Penny pressed her eye to the hole. It was the young man from the hospital. He was fish-belly pale, red-rimmed his eyes and lips, the tips of his ears. The brown curls that looked attractive at a distance were dry and wan, too long for his face, unkempt. He glistened in the reflected sunlight. A sheen of sweat covered his face and neck, interrupted only by the hair on his face. His eyes wouldn't focus. They darted from side to side with minute movements. 
She backed away from the door, unable to reconcile who she'd expected to see and the person who was there. The twisting tension in her chest wouldn't let up as Penny struggled to find her voice, gasping out at the last. Who are you? What do you want? I have. I, I need to speak to you. I need to know what's happening. With what? She heard the tension in her own voice and tried to dial it down. Why me? She watched as he clutched the sides of his head and took a deep breath. Then he looked into the peephole. Are you watching me? Can you see? He spoke through clenched teeth. Penny didn't answer, but put her forehead on the door and just watched. The man unbuttoned the top of his shirt. She could see the beginnings of a scar. As he unbuttoned, more of it could be seen, puckered and freshly healed, the scar of a heart surgery. Fear thumped in her ears. The entanglement of terror and love tore through her chest, the foulest struggle. He was gone. Her boy was gone, and she was relieved that his suffering had ended, that his body at least had done some good at the last, had given someone else life. Relieved? Am I relieved? Is that what I feel? Because his suffering ended, or mine? Her tongue found the chipped tooth again, a sharp reminder of times that should have been well past. They cut me. They cut me from my neck to navel, and they put it in. It burns. I can feel. I can feel a pull. I don't understand. I need to understand. I need something. Penny gave in to frustration. You need what? What do you want from me? I gave up my feelings. I expected to die. Now I have this heart. It was supposed to be a second chance, but it hurts. Every I can hear it. Feel it. His face compressed in pain and he ground his fingers into his chest before cupping his ears and pushing his hands roughly through his hair. She almost dropped the gun, then almost hit herself in the face with it as she recoiled to press her hands to her mouth and stifle the cry. She couldn't see him now, only hear him. His name. His name was something with a B, right? Brian or Barry or something and... He needed you for something, needed something from you to fix, for you to fix, fix it. It's all I hear, please. Penny watched her left hand float up to the security bar and push it out of the way. This can't be, this can't be. She saw her fingers undo the first bolt and the second. Her right hand dangled by her side, keeping the gun slightly behind her leg. He's dead. My son is dead. He's gone. Baron is gone. He did some good in the end. He gave his healthy heart and it was his final act. He can't be here. He can't. Her fingers closed around the knob and twisted until the door swung open and she could see him through the screen, see his eyes pleading, and she could smell him, the scent of her boy in his last days. So notable, the stink of addiction, of self-neglect, but still, her son, you. He touched a finger to the corner of his mouth, a move so familiar, so ingrained in her memory that she knew what came next. He rubbed his earlobe, reflexive, ingrained since childhood, a gesture she'd seen her son do countless times while growing up. She could see him push aside common sense and basic human love, stealing himself to give in to compulsion, an intimidating posture, desperation, primal needs taking over. You have the things I need. You can help me. Give them to me. You can make it stop. You need to save me. Give me what I need. He grabbed the handle on the screen door and gave it a violent pull. It wouldn't open. She'd locked it, of course. Old habits died the hardest. 
The visitor pushed hard on the screen and the metal threads popped out of the frame. Her throat constricted and her voice could barely be heard over the rattling door. Penny sounded as if she were being strangled. She felt as if familiar hands held her neck again. Anger colored her words. Desperation flowed. You shouldn't be here. Not anymore. Not again. Then a rabid thought lanced through her mind, driving her body. This is a chance to end it all for good. Words weren't going to fix this. It was never going to end until one of them was dead. She shot him through the screen door. The explosion slammed in her ears, loud and sharp like a hammer to a marble table. The stranger's eyes widened in shock, and red blossomed on his chest. She pulled the trigger again and again. Each recoil sent a tremor up her wrist, but she was too numb to feel it. Penny emptied the weapon into the befouled organ in his chest as he toppled backward down the stairs, tumbling to a ragdoll heap on the cracked concrete below. Her thoughts died into a flattened sine wave. The neighborhood remained silent, too quiet as she shut the door and set all the locks back in place. Someone else could make the necessary phone calls. She was too tired. The gun. She shoved it back into the drawer after the long walk back to her bed. She wanted to cry. Knew it was the logical thing to do, but she had nothing left. So tired. Penny just wanted to get some sleep, to rest before her next shift. Everything kept coming back. Around and around, it never ended. It was important to be ready for tomorrow, and it was so quiet, so peaceful. She fell asleep before the covers reached her chin. Hello, we are here today with Eric Nunnally, author of Penny Incompatible. How are you today, Eric? I'm doing great, Tanya. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about yourself as a writer, first of all? Like, when did you get started writing and what made you want to write horror? Hmm. Um, I, so I think like most people who write, they've pretty much been doing it most of their lives. And I had, I just hadn't gotten... Um, very much encouragement uh, from teachers or, you know, even uh, knowing any people who did such things in the neighborhood. And um, I read a lot, but it was, it was sort of a, a, a reading desert where I grew up. And, you know, you learn more about stories and other media and stuff when, you're, when your circle of friends are kind of sharing these things or your social circle is. Mm hmm so I didn't really get any of that. And um, I just kind of drifted away from it, even though I, I loved comic books and I loved storytelling, you know, just crafting stories and stuff. Um, and so rather than sort of pursuing that, I ended up going into the military. And then when I went to college, I ended up uh, studying graphic design. And it wasn't until much later that I started writing again. Uh, and I started to meet a lot of people that do it. And as for writing horror, I it's it's hard for me to to even think that I 
that I'm like someone who writes, I, I don't write horror exclusively. I like, I probably write horror less than anything else, but most of the people I know love writing horror. Um, and surprisingly, most horror writers are sort of the kindest group of authors <laughs> among the genres, but I, I really enjoyed speculative fiction, science fiction. I grew up on science fiction, fantasy, graduated to some horror stuff um, or a mix thereof. Yeah, I kind of want to go back to you said, to what you said for a minute about a reading desert. That mm. is something that I experienced as well. Um, listeners will maybe remember how I've talked about how um, I grew up in a community that banned a bunch of books, including To, be, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Good Lord, really? Yeah, Joy Luck Club, like all kinds of stuff. And we had to read the Bible oh. for um, one of our English <laughs> projects. <laughs> you know, not to knock on the Bible it shouldn't be the only thing. Right. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, you're banning things for like violence and sexual content and we're yeah, reading yeah. the Bible instead. So, so, you know, I grew up in a community where our school library was, you know, if, if it wasn't super clean and squeaky, mm. then it wasn't included. You know, there was very little horror. Um, the only way I read horror was by going to Walmart and buying Christopher Pike books. <laughs> <laughs> so I read a lot of Christopher Pike and R.L. Stein. They carried R.L. Stein. Mm -hmm. for a time so uh that that was the only way that I got my introduction to horror in the classroom and in libraries and at school so it was you know it was it was kind of challenging for me at first you know a lot of people even now you know people will ask me you know have you read such and such you know some famous horror classic or something like turn of the screw and I'm like no I I haven't <laughs> read I feel the same way I <laughs> I had this sort of um not certain, not for the same reasons, but the same sort of thing happened where um, I was, I would go into like a Barnes and Noble or something and just choose something like without any recommendations or anything like that. And at the time that I went to high school and college, you know, things like comics and, and sci-fi and stuff were still kind of, people still kind of looked down their nose at it, at least uh, professors did. Mm -hmm. And that was the stuff I was most into. So I was getting most of that from television and movies. Yes. Yeah. You know, people would watch TV and movies and we'd talk about that and have a good time with that. But it took me a while to realize that all of this stuff was coming from books. Yeah. You know, so many movies that I enjoyed were books before they were movies. And, you know, yeah. nowadays I meet so many people who remember reading those at the time they came out mm -hmm. and then being excited about the movie. But that didn't happen in my life. And we had, we had a really small library, and I remember reading, I read a lot of Ray Bradbury mm -hmm. uh, and Isaac Asimov, and I, I, um, I remember being really struck by The Illustrated Man uh, by, by Bradbury, and that, that really convinced me that I was really into this stuff. And mm -hmm. I actually, I took one of those books, and I never returned it. How dare you? I know. It's still banging. No one else was checking them out. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. It's still banging around in, uh, in a box somewhere. And that library doesn't exist anymore. So I can't, I can't actually return it. Oh, so you can't, you can't make it right. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, um, I have a degree in librarianship. So um, I'm a big fan of libraries. And when people don't return their books, I get angry. <laughs> but I'll I'll give you a pass. I'll I'll forgive you because your story is so great. It was like four <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Fair enough, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you know, for me, you know, what you were saying about, um, you know, getting your introduction through movies and such, you know, for me, I didn't even know, you know, when we're speaking specifically about horror and sci-fi, I didn't know of any black horror or sci-fi writers at all until I was like in my twenties, maybe even my thirties. I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't have access to that. And, you know, all of, all of my background was, you know, watching things like Tales from the Hood and Candyman and, um, you know, things like that. So I knew about like the movie side of things, but as far as writers, you know, I found myself constantly disappointed by a lot of what I read mm-hmm. because, you know, like, okay, well, yeah, this is, this is fine, I guess, but, you know, it'd be really great if the person who did Tales from the Hood, like wrote a book. <laughs> um, did, did you experience the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't very much representation at all. Like yeah. when, when you're getting it all from, at the time, when you're getting it all from media, it was it was very singular. It's very male. It was very white male, um, mm-hmm. and you would rarely see anything that seemed familiar with with your own experience. And and that goes for you know a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different types of people. Um, and it's always it's stunning now to see so much of it um, with the rise of all these different uh, content streaming services and uh, all the different avenues for more representative fiction. I just watched uh, See You Yesterday on Netflix. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Is it good? Oh, it was great. Really? <laughs> I thought it was really great. Yeah, and I, I love that it was um, that it was a short film, and that it was picked up by Spike Lee's production company, and and then remade into into this. And you know, I thought it was really entertaining, and and up. The ending, I thought the ending was perfect. I don't want to talk too much about it because I, I think it's really great. People should watch it. Well, then I'm going to have to check it out. And listeners, you should check that out too. Um, you said it was on Netflix, right? Yes. See you yesterday? Yes. Um, so let's talk about Octavia Butler because mm-hmm. in every single interview I've ever done, she's just come up randomly. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I should just bring be proactive and bring her up <laughs> early on. When, when did you discover Octavia's work? Um, late, pretty late. Um, I, I'm trying to remember which one of her books that I read first, but I do remember, um, when I first met my wife before we were married, um, she had read some of the books well before I did. Mm -hmm. And which one was it? Uh, it's a parable of the sower fledgling. What was the other one? That's usually a first stop yeah you know for me it was the um shoot i'm trying to remember the name of it the one it's a series about um aliens who come to earth and they interbreed with humans oh the xenogenesis trilogy yeah okay i had wikipedia to the rescue (laughs) (laughs) you know i haven't i haven't read that one yet but again you know i'm more on like the horror side of things than than sci-fi yeah yeah so i read that and then um uh, Kindred, of course, everybody's oh, yeah. mm-hmm. talking about Kindred, and then I read Parable of the Sower, which, you know, I, I really dug for the um, the whole superpowers type angle, mm-hmm. but yeah, that was, uh, I, I think I had, and the other thing too is I was, when I was reading these things before, since there was nobody to talk to about them, <laughs> right. there was no photo in the back, I had no idea whether the person was white, black, male, female, or anything. You know, I think that's the case with a lot of authors that aren't white and male, is their photos do not appear 
in the back of books, or at least historically, I think that's, that's certainly changing now, but you know, there were a lot of people that I read that I was like, oh, this is a woman that wrote this, you know, because they wrote by their initials. Right. Instead of their names. So for me, I came to Octavia late as well. You know, I, I just asked somebody one day, I was like, I want to read some more black horror. And somebody's like, have you read Octavia Butler? And I'm like, who? And they were like, oh my God. <laughs> and off you go, right? Like, my bad, my bad. I'm, you know, I'm from a, you know, closeted community in East Texas. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah, they would have never had fledgling on their bookshelves anywhere in any of the stores either. So, um, so yeah, so yeah, I get, I get coming to it like, but that was sort of an awakening for me. And I'm wondering if, you know, you kind of had the same experience, you know, finally reading something that was more from your community. You know, by then it was, um, it was uplifting, but it was weird. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I'd read enough science fiction. I think what it was about it was it was the first time, it was the first time I'd read stories that really pushed that aspect forward because a lot of science fiction writers look at the future as like everyone's going to be there, right? Mm -hmm. That there's going to be more of a blend of humanity. You're just going to have to expect more brown skin and it'll get mentioned. It's not, it's in no way a cultural driver of the story. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time I'd, I'd read it where the identity of these characters seemed familiar to me, as opposed to just something in the far-flung future where, well, of course, you know, there's just going to be a lot more brown people. Right, right. So let's kind of move on to talking about your story, Penny Incompatible. I'm curious to know what was your inspiration for that story? All, all kinds of bad things. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Detail. Well, this particular story, or this type of story, I've only written a few. Um, and there's a couple things that inspired it. One of them was my desire to, to get it into Lamplight, to get something into Lamplight magazine. <laughs> and it's not the type of writing that comes naturally to me. But I do enjoy reading these types of things. And I guess what I wanted to see was exactly what we just talked about, more of the familiar stuff in there. But when I think of horrific things, I usually think of history, like whatever it is that people come up with as scary or just disturbing as it is, it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't hold up against history. History is like the most terrifying thing I can think of. <laughs> True. And um, I started to, you know, I, I've done this a few times where I set things in the neighborhood I grew up in. So the, the neighborhood that Penny's in is, is the one that I grew up in. And all of those descriptions are, are very personal. Like it's very, very much the way I experienced that place once I was old enough. You know, when you're a kid, everything is all unicorns and cupcakes. If, you know, if you, you've got decent parents. And the, the character herself like all the situations in it are things that I'm just familiar with. Um, the character herself is like an amalgamation of all of my aunts who, you know, people tend to forget like how close we are to pre the pre-civil rights era. You know, we're only a few generations removed from, from slavery and things like that. And so my aunts and my parents and my grandparents, their options, at least in the, in that part of Boston, their options for, for living a full life with a career were, were kind of limited. So I thought it was odd that like all the women in my life were either nurses or teachers, right? They'd be preschool or daycare, grade school teachers. 
at nursing, either nursing at a hospital in shifts and late shifts or doing it at a, um, like Penny does at, a, at an old folks home or a, um, a rehab facility. And the way that they sort of lived and uh, some of the stories they told, and, and I know some nurses now, so, you know, <laughs> contact people and say, like, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on the job? You know, what's <laughs> yeah. the weirdest thing you've ever encountered? Um, so it, it, the, story is, the story itself is fictional, but it's sort of cobbled together from a lot of nonfiction. Right. And I think the best stories, you know, are mostly nonfiction, just, you know, imagined events. Right, right. In a world that could happen. Yeah, I think so. I also remember very acutely uh, when, so the, the neighborhood I grew up in in Boston is called Mattapan, and it's sort of the southernmost tip of the city, and it's like 98% black. And in the early 80s, a lot of Caribbeans and Africans came to the neighborhood. So I was in my early teens, and I, I remember this transition and seeing like colorism and, and you know, cultural bigotry and stuff. There's all the Jamaicans, Asians, and Kenyans, Nigerians, all kinds of people had come, moved into the neighborhood, Haitians, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's just funny to contrast it between now, let's see, we're 30, 40 years later from when they arrived and how integrated it is now and how much more part of the fabric of the neighborhood it is uh, in terms of these folks came and they opened restaurants and, you know, they, they brought their culture with them. And now their kids have all grown up with all of the other kids. And it's just one big, <laughs> it's just one big pot of black folk now. But I wanted to show some of that at the time. Like there was a little bit, there was sort of this, um, there was a tension between those groups moving into the neighborhood and, and the folks who'd been there. Mm -hmm. So we met originally at Boscombe, speaking yeah. of um, being from Boston, which is a sci-fi fantasy convention. There's horror there too. <laughs> There's always horror. <laughs> always. We're always there. We infiltrate. And one of the things that I loved about meeting you is that you are such an enthusiastic person. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like every time I would see you, it would just like brighten my day. Like you guys, Eric Aww. has such a great energy. <laughs> it's just like, you can't see him and, you know, see him smile without being like, oh yeah, today's a great day. <laughs> <laughs> my wife would never believe you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, I think my husband feels the same way about me. Like when people tell me things at conferences and he's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things uh, that you did at Boscone was you introduced the first story that I ever read um, in front of an audience. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and I wanted yeah. to thank you for that. You made that go really <laughs> smoothly. And you made me feel really good about it after. So, so thank you. Welcome. Anyway, so we'll get off, we'll get off that side trip <laughs> there for a second. You know, I'm curious if you've talked to any of the nurses that you know about if they've ever felt that there was like a ghost or haunting or a presence in the hospital. Cause that's something that I ask a lot of my sisters and nurse. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't uh, ask about that in particular. I was asking about, um, responsibilities, mm -hmm. procedures, and the, the types of things you'd have to deal with. And I think um, the other thing that informed this for me was my father, he had like, 
most of the older men in my family have have died from alcoholism uh, in one form or another, right? It's always alcoholism, high blood pressure, heart attack, hypertension, something like diabetes, something like that. So um, he had, he's the last person that I had to deal with like this. Um, He had found himself in the emergency room a couple of times, hallucinating, um, having all kinds of issues and um, what we found out is that his regular drinking was actually, since he was exceeding certain levels, and was sending ammonia into his brain. He was hallucinating. And I remember after the emergency room uh, at a hospital, and then there's sort of a halfway point where they send you back. And this is the type of place that Penny works in, where um, it's, it's um, I forget the name of it. <laughs> it's not hospice. That's, that's not at all what it is. Um, like long-term care. Yeah. Um, but it's transitional. It's like we're we're going to keep working with you. It's, it's rehabilitatory care. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep working with you and until you're ready to to be sent home. And so many of the patients there, I feel like every time I've I've had to find myself in a, a hospital or or someplace like this, either with elderly, with kids, or whatever, because you know my youngest daughter had cancer, and we, we you know we were in cancer wards and stuff like that. But all of the patients there, like everybody there, is suffering, and there's kind of a there's kind of a psychic darkness in the air. And anytime you meet the eyes of anybody in these places, it's like you're looking at a ghost because they're not quite all there. And then when it's, when it's someone, you, someone you love, someone you, you know, it's even weirder. Like, this is not the person I know. And how do we get them back? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I completely, completely agree with that on so many levels. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not happy places. No. My sister works in an ICU and, you know, that's obviously not a happy place. Right. She's seen some things. Yes, she has seen some things. I don't know how she does it. I could not do her job. There's no way in hell. Right. God bless her because not me could not be me. (laughs) So how long have you been writing uh, and, you know, making money with writing, writing seriously? Um, I think since about 2014 or so, I think 2014 is when my first novel came out, Blood for the Sun. And I had been sort of really trying to go at it since about 2010. So actually not that long. I mean, you know, I always tinkered with it, but I hadn't been, you know, taking it very seriously. And so I, you know, shared it and trying to get it published and stuff. Right. So are you a full-time writer now? No, no, I am not. (laughs) Like like many of us. Exactly. I still hold a day job. Do you aspire to be a full-time writer? Um, I think I would not mind being such a thing if it were at that fantastical level that the media portrays and that we know is only a very tiny percentage. Yeah. So it's, it's more of a fantasy. What I would love is for the writing that I do to support the writing that I do. Yes. And, you know, so being able to self-promote and go to conventions and stuff based on the income coming from the writing, like that, that would be ideal. I think that would be great. Or just pay for stuff. You know, there, there's a small percentage of people that make it to that level. Right. Even, and I think, you know, making it to that level is a huge success. I mean, even publishing a novel is a huge success. I feel like every step in a writing career <laughs> is huge. Right. It's just so yeah. hard. It's it's a slog forward, you know, and the and the publishing industry does not move like lightning. No, 
in any regard. No, it does not. It moves like molasses on a cold winter <laughs> day in the Arctic. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the work that you do have out there right now that that you would love for us to either read or listen to, watch, whatever. Okay. Um, I have a story about uh, Jack Johnson in, uh, in an anthology called The Final Summons. It's from the New England, New England Speculative Writing Group. There is a story, A Few Extra Pounds, uh, that's in Transcendent from Transmundane Press. I've, I'm really proud of both of those. They've been around for a little while. I, I love the idea of taking Jack Johnson, this historical figure, and doing something fictional with him because it's, he's one of those people that's that's old enough that we don't really have good records of all of his past. And a few extra pounds is, is a cross between psychological and body horror. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Um, I just had something picked up for... New England Horror Writers Anthology, they're doing a weird themed anthology, so um, I sold them a story, A Song of War and Death. Oh. That's actually based on a based on a thing that actually happened to me when I was in the Marine Corps. I we were doing this huge like battalion-wide operation in, in North Africa and it was in the desert, and it's not the type of desert that you think of, it's a bunch of sand dunes and stuff. It's just flat plains, dry, arid. And I got separated at night from my platoon oh no yeah so it was real interesting for a few <laughs> minutes because, <laughs> because it's uh you know there's nothing there's like literally nothing it's not like you can uh, check the gps or look at a street sign there's no light there's nothing so long story short i did find my way back to another another battalion and then i connected with people in the morning so kind of anticlimactic. It was only a few minutes, but those few minutes. Yeah. I've been lost in the woods before, which oh. is better than being lost, you know, on a flat plane with, you know, no. No, that happened when we got back. I got lost in the woods. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, that, it's really frightening to be lost, you know, even, even if you're only lost for like a minute or two, you know, especially right, if right. you're alone, it's, you know, it's like, oh crap, you know, no one knows I'm here. I don't know where I am. And I have a, I have a story. I'm not entirely sure when it's going to come out, but it's it's called The Wild Man of Mao, and it's it's based on a role playing game. So it's going to be a companion to um, Pugmire. So there's there's it's one of these um, sort of uplifted animal games, and I, I really didn't feel like I could uh, I could do this, but I learned very early on if somebody asked you, "Hey, would you like to do this?" You say yes. Yeah. <laughs> Figure it out you later. Take Especially if you're getting paid to do oh, it. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. You should always be paid to say no if you're not getting paid. That's right. So I got, um, I wrote this, uh, I wrote this story that I'm actually really proud of. And, and the editor really enjoyed it. And I can't wait to see it come out. Um, I contributed a story to the Dystopian States of America, which is a benefit anthology for the uh, ACLU. And it's called We All Live Under the Same Sun. And yeah, that's that's about it right now. I'm I'm just I'm, I I got the rights back to Blood for the Sun, and I've been working on improving that, and and hopefully getting it back into print. Because every now and then people ask, like, "Hey, is there a sequel to this?" <laughs> and there is, but I need to get it printed. Yes, please do, please do, because I was going to ask you about that. It sounded interesting. So you said um, 
just real quick a song of war and death is that one out yet that one is not out yet i believe it's going to debut this summer though um i think they're going to debut it at the necronomicon in uh, rhode island which is convenient because that's where i live <laughs> that was for the new england um the new england horror writers horror writers association yeah okay good deal i'm gonna put links to the ones that are out um in the show notes so people can <clears throat> can get to that yeah transcendent and um the final summons those are definitely out <laughs> excellent was there anything else that you wanted to share with us i'm probably going to forget something here other than my next novel called lightning wears the red cape is going to be released in september and it's uh it's about superpowers developing in in marginalized groups of people oh. and uh, the kind of problems it it, it can cause and it's the whole thing was sort of born of, of characters. Um, you know what? I'll, let me rewind even further. Um, when I was a kid and I started drawing comics and, um, you know, I take apart action figures and create new ones. Mm -hmm. I think when I was about 12, when I was 11 or 12 years old, I, I sort of looked at everything that I was doing and I was like, why are all of my characters white and why are they all male? Yeah. It's just a natural thing that I was doing. Just. Right. Because that's what you read. So you imitate what you read. Yeah. So I took all of that apart over the next few years. And I, it was this lightning wears a red cape is an idea that's been banging around in my head since high school. Finally, I wrote it three or four times, um, you know, over the, the last 20 years or so. Um, and then I finally put it together in a form that was, you know, uh, coherent. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you're it features... trying not to be coherent. I've read some right. like that, but. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> um, and it features, um, you know, I got to write in there, uh, Shango, the Yoruban god of um, thunder and lightning. Oh. Analogous to Thor. I got a, I've got a martial artist who's trained on another planet, a guy who's like Superman, who's, part of the police force. Um, and all of this is built on, you know, I, I feel like I sh whenever I do this, I have some rules. Like you can't, nobody's wearing a bikini in the battle, right? None of that. That there should be more marginalized folks represented in these things. Um, there's a woman who um, she, she can essentially manipulate things at the molecular level. And um, this is a black woman. There's, there's a young black kid who's uh, handicapped but he's he's like grindingly poor um and after his brother dies he discovers that he has some abilities and the one thing that everybody's been worried about is if someone develops some ability and uses it for crime a mm -hmm. or b if they develop some ability that allows them to do some kind of mental manipulation which of course is exactly what happens so this there's a uh core group of four criminals that have been sort of scooping up criminal organizations and and, and gangs um just expanding the organization because their leader has the ability to control emotions oh. so sort of projecting empath and i i just like the idea of, of someone being um that level of manipulative yeah you actually have free will but because you love this person you'll do anything or because you're afraid of them etc right. etc so is this novel available for pre-order yet? It 
absolutely is available for pre-order. Excellent. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Okay, so we'll put yes. links to that in the show notes as well, guys, to find. Excellent. Last but not least, if you could only read one work of, of from a Black writer that was horror <laughs> or sci-fi, I'll allow sci-fi, for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, man. Horror or sci-fi. Oh, I like thrillers and crime novels, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? If I had, we talking uh, just one author? Just one author. Walter Mosley. I, I think that's an excellent choice. Excellent choice. Because yeah. there's a lot to read out there. Yeah, he dabbles. He dabbles. He, he does great. He does great crime thrillers. Um, he does. He writes great science fiction. He writes some good horror. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we can pick through that forever and ever. Good choice. Thanks so <laughs> much for joining us, Eric. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Tanya. I really appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. You have been a pleasure to speak with, and the uh, I love this podcast. This this was a great idea. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to our patrons for supporting this podcast. Without the Nightlight Legion, this podcast would not exist. We're just a couple of weeks away from our one-year anniversary, and we couldn't be more thankful for your love and support. You can join the Nightlight Legion by going to patreon.com nightlightpod, or if you prefer, you can do a one-time donation at paypal.me nightlightpodcast. And as always, if you are unable to contribute financially to the podcast, we appreciate any sort of shout out that you can give us online, any reviews, sharing the podcast with your friends, telling the world about us, all of that stuff helps immensely. To celebrate our one year anniversary, we're also going to be posting a new story every week for the month of June. So we'll see you next week for another story. But to thank you for listening until the end, we have a creepy fact for you. In 2003, a doctor in Houston, Texas, named Hitoshi Nakaido, was decapitated after his head was trapped in the doors of an elevator. So if you weren't scared of elevators before, now you are. You're welcome. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.